You know, one of the lines in the song that uh, Mark just sung is that Calvary's love can heal the spirit life has crushed and cast aside. I want to tell you this morning uh, a story this morning about a man whose tragedies in life were only surpassed by his amazing and incredible faith in God. Uh, Job is one of the most fascinating books in the Bible. It's also, perhaps, uh, one of the least well-known and even less understood. Uh, it's, a, it's a very uh, difficult book for many people to, to get a hold of. But um, the story is of a fellow who lived most likely around the time of Abraham, maybe a little before, maybe a little after, but in that period uh, still of what we would call the patriarchs, uh, those uh, uh, great uh, men and families of old that, that lived those long lives and that uh, are recorded for us in the book of Genesis. And uh, in Job's life, he becomes the unwitting focus of the cosmic battle that exists between God and Satan and the powers of darkness. Of course, we know how that battle ultimately uh, turns out, and we know that only God is omnipotent, uh, all-powerful, and He does certainly win uh, in the end, but there are times when it's hard from our vantage point to tell which way the skirmish is going. And uh, Job finds himself the focus of one of these battles where uh, the powers of darkness and, and Satan himself is pitted against a man whom God cherishes and values highly. And so, um, one day in Job's life, a life, by the way, that had been lived rather comfortably for his time, uh, he was a leader, a highly respected man, very wealthy in his uh, accumulations of uh, material goods, uh, in a land called Uz, which uh, many uh, commentators feel was probably in a region south of the Dead Sea there in the Palestine area. However, uh, today it's a desert. Probably in um, Job's time it was uh, lush and green and uh, full and, and a much different kind of ecology than we have today. And uh, Job was recognized as one of the truly great men of his time. Until one day, a, a series of messengers appears before him, bringing one wave of bad news after another. The first one arrives and tells him that a band of raiders have come in and they have uh, killed all of his servants and taken all uh, of his uh, oxen and cattle. And hardly has that fellow finished speaking until another one comes in and tells him that something similar has happened with all of his sheep and goats. And hardly has that man finished talking when someone comes in and tells him that uh, another uh, group has come and uh, massacred and, and stolen all of his camels and massacred all of his servants there. 
And as these shock waves, one after another, are beginning to settle in on Job, as he realizes that everything he owns in this world is crumbling before his eyes, another messenger arrives. And he says, Job, your sons and daughters were in a house out on the prairie and they were having a a, a party and they were having this gathering and a wind like a violent tornado came and beat against the four corners of the house and the house collapsed and all of your children and their families were killed and all of their servants. And Job is just reeling. Uh, He can hardly believe that not only has he lost everything that he owns, but he has now lost his family. He is trying to absorb the grief of this, trying to respond to the shock. Life has that numbing effect, and then it begins to give way to the pain that arises in this time of significant loss. And just when you think it can't get any worse, Job becomes ill. Something afflicts him and begins to eat away at the tissues of his body and at his skin. He has sores and boils breaking out all over him. Uh, he's, He's itching and burning and blistering and miserable. The Scripture tells us that he even took broken uh, bits of pottery to scrape the, the oozing mess off of his skin and to try to get to the itch that just would not go away. And Job is dissolving in a, in a puddle of misery. He's finally moved to the outskirts of town. He's out by the garbage dump. His servants won't even listen to him. They don't even come when he calls. The ones he has left at home. His wife is not helping him very much. For one thing, she can't stand his breath. He says, even my wife loathes the smell of my breath. But maybe that's a good thing. Because all she had to say to him at this point was, why don't you just curse God and die? Job, you're a mess. How could this happen? Just just curse God and forget it all. Job's friends have turned away from him. Those who loved him are now ostracizing him. And the children of the village are making fun of him. This once venerated and respected elder of the community is being taunted by the children as they watch him try to get up and make fun of his movements. Can you imagine a more pathetic sight? Can you imagine being inside of Job and experiencing the the, the loss and the... I mean, he's lost his family, he's lost his wealth, he's lost his health. He's lost his prestige. He's lost his dignity. He's lost everything. 
The only thing you can say for Job is he's still breathing. That's about it. And he's in miserable pain. And we're told in the story that about this time, three of his friends who hear about this disaster come to comfort him. I'll leave it to you to decide in a few moments if that's actually what they accomplish. But uh, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, his three friends from other regions, uh, perhaps fellow, um, uh, you know, ruling class kind of people, come to see if they can be of some help to Job. Later on, we're introduced to Elihu. There was actually four of them, but the story in the beginning ends around these three. And when they come to see Job and they lay their eyes on him, they don't know what to say. They are speechless. He is so pathetic, so odious. So sick and so sad that they just sit down with him and, and weep for a week. That's the period of mourning, by the way. They're just mourning with him. This is horrible. How could this happen? And then they try to offer some insight for Job. And as they go about beginning to try to help him uh, get some handle on what's happened in his life, they come up with a brilliant theory. Job, your life in public has been amazing. You have been respected. You've helped people. You've gone out of your way for others. You've been generous. You, you've been known as one of the kindest men that, that has ever been heard of. Job, you have lived a public life that is beyond uh, any kind of discredit. You're an amazing person. But there has to be something secret. Some sin. Some evil in your life. And it's come to pay you back. Job, fess up. What's going on inside of you that you've hidden from the world? That God has brought this judgment in your life. Ever have any friends like that? <laughs> Are they still your friends? <laughs> You know, these three fellows express an attitude that is really very common to us. Um, I don't want to pick on anyone, and frank, frankly, no one's name comes to mind right now, but I hear it often enough that I know some of you have said it, so the shoe fits wear it. Um, I always cringe and grieve inside. When I hear someone say to me, I don't know what I've done that God would be doing this to me. 
I don't know what I could have done to deserve what I'm getting. It's like it's on the human hard drive somehow that if we do good stuff, we're going to get great blessing. And by the way, that's translated into good health and, 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 and wealth. And if we do bad stuff, we're going we're gonna to have trouble. And therefore, if we have trouble, we have done bad stuff. And if we're blessed, we have done good stuff. Now, friends, there's nothing in all the scriptures, when you read the, the whole story in context, to support that perspective. David himself in Psalm 37 says, I have watched the rich man, the wealthy, the prosperous, the flourishing like a, a, a tremendous tree, spreading its branches and growing and, and lush and beautiful, while the righteous suffer. And I'm hard-pressed to explain that. Of course, if you read on, he goes on and says, and then one day I looked and that luxurious tree was just gone. Because that will happen in due season. But we want to somehow equate blessings in life with the fact that we've done good stuff. And we want to equate problems in life with the fact that, well, I've done something that God is punishing me. And whenever I hear someone say that, it, it grieves me. Because when, when you're in a time of suffering, you need God to be so close to you. You need to connect with Him. You need to touch Him. You, you need to reach out and, and sense His love. And that attitude just pushes Him away. Who wants to snuggle up to a God that's just pummeling you? And this was the conclusion of Job's friends. And, and in the story of Job, they go around three times. It's not like once is enough. They just keep telling this story over and over again. Uh, you have one round, all three of them speak. And then you have another round, a couple of them speak. And then you have another round, and they all speak again. And finally, Elihu, who happens to be the youngest one of them all, he's kind of held his peace throughout the whole episode because he figures, well, you guys are older and wiser. I'm going to give you a chance to talk about what you know. But, but then finally, Elihu, beginning toward the end of the book in chapter 32, he starts to talk. And he's not, really not any better than the other three. And in all of this, Job is just constantly being badgered. Here he is suffering in this horrible illness. And this devastating grief of all that he's lost. And in the midst of it all, he's got these three so-called friends that are just tearing him down. Tell us your secret sin, Job. We know there's something in there. In Job chapter 19, verse 23. Kind of like right in the middle of all of this. It's after the second round of uh, accusations. Job is just wringing his hands. He's, he's grieving inside. He cannot convince them that his life on the outside is consistent with his life on the inside. And that he has been inside everything that he's been outside. 
that he has been a man of integrity. He, he can't get this point across. And he doesn't know what's become of his life. He's at a loss to explain him, himself. He doesn't know how to make sense of all of this. But he longs to be vindicated. He wants someone to stand up for him and say, I know that Job is an honest man, and that inside he is true to himself. In verse 23 of Job 19, he says, Oh, that my words were written. You see, at this point, Job doesn't have much hope of living much longer. He's expecting that he's going to be dying soon. Um, He's down to, to, to skin and bones in his wasting away. It's in this section that that, that phrase, we get the skin of your teeth. Well, who has skin on their teeth? (laughs) Not not anyone that I know. You might be talking about the gums, but it's just a very strange phrase. It was probably an idiom uh, of use in their time. But Job is saying, I'm down down to the last shreds. There's just nothing left of me. I'm not expecting to live much longer. I don't know how I can. But I wish my words were written down. I I wish they would not be forgotten. I wish time would be a testimony that I have maintained my integrity. He says, I I wish they were inscribed in a book. Well, it wasn't literally a book in those days. They they probably used parchment. But I'm sure he thought about that for a moment. He thought, well, parchment's not going to last very long. Maybe, Maybe it would be better if they were inscribed with an iron stylus on a sheaf of lead. There's evidence, again, in that early period of time that people had already learned how to beat out lead uh, and temper it just right and make it into thin sheaves that they could then use a sharp uh, stylus and scratch uh, the letters into it. And it would have some longevity. And he says, maybe we could do that. And then he says, no... I, I wish I wish that my words, my testimony could be inscribed in rock, in stone. I want it in granite. But you know, the reality is that in time, everything disintegrates. The parchment just basically decays and The lead becomes scratched and ruined. And even over time, if you've gone into an old cemetery and looked at the old tombstones, uh, in time, even the letters that are etched in stone begin to crumble and the edges wear. And after a season, everything decays. And Job is saying, What will testify to me? What will make sense of my life? What will vindicate me in in the midst of my village and my community and my friends? What will last? And you know how when you're suffering, and this is true for most of us, uh, there are not very many people that can go through long periods of suffering and always stay up. I I don't care who you are, if we're honest with ourselves, 
we have down days. Sometimes we may have more down days than up days. Even if we have great faith, times are tough. And Job vacillates. There are moments in the book when it's like he catches a glimpse and then he sinks back into his, his pain and his suffering. But I submit to you that this is one of the most sublime moments in the book of Job. When he comes to this point, and Bildad has just royally chewed him out and and painted a picture for him that is just horrible. And he's crying out for vindication and someone to make uh, some sense out of his experience. And he comes out with these words, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will take His stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. The Hebrew says it makes me faint within Makes my heart faint within, but it's like saying, takes my breath away to think about this. I know that my Redeemer lives. I want to open that up for us a little bit here for a moment. Notice what Job says. I know. I know. Not I hope. Not I guess, not I wish, I know that my Redeemer lives. He has absolute confidence that his Redeemer is alive. Now, I want to tell you right here, and a number of you here this morning, I know, are Bible students and you study the Scriptures. Um, This is difficult Hebrew, and there are all kinds of interpretations of this. Um, the last uh, two or three hundred years has seen all kinds of, as rationalism has taken more and more foothold, uh, there's been all kinds of interpretations of what this means. But I go back, all the way back to the history of the church, 1,700 years of church history, and the last 300 years of conservative scholarship. That what I have just read to you from the New American Standard text of the Bible is the accurate and appropriate translation Chrysostom believed that he was talking about Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, coming to reign. Clement of Rome believed that. Augustine believed that. Thomas Aquinas, the Catholic theologian, believed it. Luther believed it. Uh, John Calvin believed it. John Wesley believed it. The Puritans believed it. The Arminians and the Calvinists believed it. Uh, The great preachers of, of time have believed that this passage rightly understood is that Job has some insight, some wisdom, some vision. That he has a living Redeemer who is one day going to stand beside him and vindicate him and take him unto himself and that he will see this Redeemer in his resurrected flesh. The people that have problems with that interpretation 
basically do so when it comes down to the bottom line. They say, well, I'm not sure about that because we don't think people of that day could have had that kind of knowledge or even understanding that sort of New Testament stuff or at least uh, later on in the Old Testament. But, you know, Jesus in John chapter 8 says an amazing thing about Abraham, who was probably in the same time frame as Job. He says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it. When did Abraham see the day of Jesus Christ? By divine revelation. I'm confident there's a lot that is not written down that the, the patriarchs and the ancients were aware of. I believe that Adam, when he was expelled from the garden, nonetheless was given the understanding and insight that from uh, his life and Eve's would come a Redeemer one day. Then he understood that a blood sacrifice was required to atone for sin. That he was looking forward to the time. In fact, they were hoping it would be soon when Seth was born. Um, Eve said, maybe this is the one. And they were anticipating. And somehow even Abraham and his understanding and his communion with God was given to, to see by faith and, and, and by vision in some way the, the coming day of Jesus Christ. And I believe that Job had that same knowledge and that same understanding. And in the midst of his misery, when he's at the end of his rope and the end of his wits and the end of his friends... And he says, who is going to make sense of my life? Who is going to stand up for me? Who is going to make this all clear? I know, I know my Redeemer lives. Not in the future, not in the incarnation. He's living now. He's alive today. Job is saying he lives this moment. He is the eternal one. One day he will come in the flesh. One day at the last, he will take his stand upon this earth. But I know that he's living even now. I know that he sees my heart. I know that he sees my life. I know that he knows the truth. And even after my skin is destroyed, He says, when I have decayed in the grave, yet in my flesh, in this body, I will see God. And if anyone thinks that might be metaphorical, he goes on to say, whom my eyes will see. These eyeballs with lens and retina and cornea and and vitreous, these eyeballs will see God. In my flesh, I will behold Him. I know that my Redeemer lives. An amazing proclamation of faith by a man who is in the midst of one of life's darkest moments. And he finds meaning and hope and a future in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, I want to ask you this morning. In the last day, who is going to make sense out of your life? Who is going to stand 
as your kinsman redeemer. Because that's really what the verse is referring to. Uh, I could go on and on about so many things about this passage, but he uses a word for redeemer that uh, refers to the kinsman redeemer, one who is part of my family, one who is like me, who has been charged if I have fallen into debt to pay my debt. If, if I have uh, had some tragedy happen to me or I've lost my home or something uh, through some event, uh, my kinsman redeemer is entitled. Uh, there was an amazing uh, law that God built into the life of Israel that if, if you fell into debt and you had to sell off your property to satisfy your debt, you could sell your home to someone or you could sell your land to someone, but a kinsman redeemer from your family had the legal authority to go and buy it back from the, the, the buyer. To pay the price, the redemption price, and buy it back and give it back to you or preserve it for the family. Boy, that'd make it tough to sell a house today, wouldn't it? You know, you get a short sale or a foreclosure, and then uh, all of a sudden some guy comes along and says, uh, you know, uh, John Doe, you bought this house from? Well, I'm his brother, and uh, I'm writing you a check. I'm taking over this house. I'm giving it back to John. You say, wait a minute, what kind of a deal is that? Well, in God's eyes, it was a pretty good one, you know. And he built it into the life of Israel. So that if a person fell into hard times, into difficulties, into problems, a kinsman redeemer could come and redeem the property, redeem the life. Or if you were murdered, he could venge, uh, take vengeance for your life. The kinsman redeemer was the one who would stand for you, who would pay your debt, who would satisfy the accusations against you. Oh, isn't that like our Lord Jesus Christ, who has paid our debt, who has satisfied the accusations against us? Paul says in Romans chapter 8, what can, what can anyone say? Who can lay a charge to God's elect? What can the devil say about me? I am crucified and justified and redeemed and restored in Jesus Christ. And if God is for me, who can be against me? I know my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will take His stand upon this earth. There will be a final judgment. There will be an end of time. There will be a conclusion to humanity. And we will all stand before Almighty God. Who will make sense of your life? Who will be your kinsman redeemer? Who will stand for you? Who will pay your debt that you justly owe? Who will absolve you of the guilt that is rightfully yours? Who will take you to His side and usher you into His presence at the end of days? Job says, I know. Whatever you guys may say, whatever you may think, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last... He will stand upon this earth and in my flesh, in my resurrected body, I will see him.
We celebrate Jesus Christ today because he is a risen Savior. He's not in a grave. He's not decaying somewhere in the Middle East. He is alive evermore in a resurrected body. And one day he's coming back. Who is going to make sense out of your life? Who is going to stand by your side? His offer is wide open and free. Come to me. Those of you that are troubled, those of you that are downtrodden, those of you that are weary, those of you that are overburdened, those of you that can't make sense out of your life, come to me. Take from me. Drink from my well. Eat of my bread. Step into my yoke, for it's easy and my burden is light, and you will find rest there. But you have to make that decision. Friend, one day we will stand before God in judgment. One day there will be a time of reckoning. And the most important question in that day will be, Have I taken Jesus Christ as my kinsman redeemer? Have I received him as my Lord and Savior? Am I resting in him? As the one who has paid my debt? Or am I outside the fold and under the wrath of God? The scripture says today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. And friends, I urge you, I urge you, if you have not taken Jesus Christ as your Redeemer, today is the day to do that. God understands your heart. There's no formulaic prayer. There's no special words. Basically, as you come and you say, Lord, everything they've said about me may not be true, like Job, but there's a lot they don't know, and there's a lot that I know, and I need your forgiveness. I need you to pay the debt. I need you... To free me, I need you to be my Redeemer. I take you today by faith as my Redeemer. If you haven't done that, right where you're sitting right now, would you do that? Would you align yourself with Jesus Christ and trust Him? In life's darkest hour, when nothing makes sense, Because of the resurrection, a living Savior, Jesus, makes sense. Father, I pray this morning that you would open our hearts to receive this word. That we would, with Job, whether we're in a dark night or a bright day, we would declare boldly with faith, I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the last time He will stand upon this earth, and in my resurrected flesh with Him, I will see Him with my very own eyes. My Redeemer, my Savior, my risen Lord. 
I ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.